Kaya Wanju. In our language of the Bibbulmun people, means welcome. Tribal Fires is a podcast channel by the Dumbatung Aboriginal Corporation in Perth, Western Australia. It will tell of stories of the political, the cultural and social struggles of our people through the lens of the vanquished and not that of the victors. Our word for fire in the Bibbulmun language is kaal. Tribal Indigenous fires have burned around this world on the great lands of snow and ice through the highest mountain peaks and the lowest valleys, on deserts of sand and red dust, rainforests, woodlands on coastal plains of tundra in the land of hills and jungles, beside the world's greatest lakes and swamplands. They have been tended by thousands of generations of Indigenous peoples by means of using flint fire sticks and plant fibre. All had spiritual stories associated with the creation of fire. It gave warmth in the cold. It cooked raw meat. It was used to harden wood for spears, shields, Kylie, the boomerangs. It kept dark spirits from the camp at night. Tracks were cleared for nomadic movement as to see poisonous snakes and other animals. Fire was used to burn back the land, to allow new growth. It protected areas for all other smaller animals in their habitats. Fire burned back revealed animal burrows and helped in the hunting process. It was an essential part of the evolutionary change for Indigenous peoples globally. Many stories merged of how the world's Indigenous people created fire from the spiritual world. Tribal fires give honour to the blood of our ancestors that flows into our hearts of our spirit. It honours those who have come before us and grew of age with great wisdom of connection to the earth, to the land that we call our Buja, to the great warriors who fought hard and courageous with only wood fibre against allied steel and gunpowder and fell to the ground in the defence of our lands. To our ancestral women, the Yorgas, the last that walked the ceremonial tracks and trade routes of her great Wajak peoples of what is now the city of Perth in Western Australia. To our wisdom of the elders who truly told the stories of horror and terror of massacres that stole away our homelands forever. In these times today, Tribal Fires recognises the harmless and the innocent and the peaceful souls who have been dragged into dark, damp prisons, for those who have had their children stolen away, for those who are facing the living hell and despair of severe addiction, for those lost in the torment of mental illness, for those confused by identity crisis of the bloodlines that are lost in finding a truth greater than that of sense of deceit and hypocrisy. For those of us in the freeze, suffering the insanity of ice, and especially to those of our young and frail who at this very moment are having their innocence shattered at the hands of monsters, may our campfires burn for you forever. We need to protect the pride and the visions of our aspirations and dreams, never allowing the forced occupation to victimise a sense of shackled enslavement greater than that of our human rights to freedom and salvation. As the great Mel, 
the eye of the yoga, the eagle, casts an endless shadow of movement over the sacred buja, our land, void of any emotional reason, pierced by the bloodshed of our great warriors, the wisdom of our elders and the strengths of our future generations. Janga Minya Bomaga, the smell of the white man is killing us, is the Dumbatung Aboriginal Corporation statement describing the ongoing oppression and the spiritual genocide of our people. Tribal fires will take the stories of Dumbatung's journey over the last 35 years into the modern world through the podcast systems. Tribal fires aims to give a transition to that history and the knowledge of that history into the next generation and into that generation and the one to follow that and the one to follow that. Our maxim at Dumbatung is to may our campfires burn forever and to give that maxim a reality through modern platforms such as podcasts. So this is a welcome to Tribal Fires and the first uh, episode that will follow this introduction and then from there the stories of Dumbatung and linkages to interviews with other Indigenous people and in particular Indigenous people from around the world will constitute us keeping our culture alive and strong. So tune in to each episode as we produce them and listen to the stories as they're told by our people for our people. May our campfires burn forever. My name's Robert Eggington and I'm the director of the Dumbatung Aboriginal Corporation. I'm a Wilman man from the Bibbulmun clans in the southwest of Western Australia. I thought for a long time about setting up a, uh, a podcast process called Tribal Fires in order for us as um, Bibbulmun people and people associated with Dumbatung to be able to tell of the stories and the struggles and the um, challenges in which this organisation, which has been thwart with attacks by government in reference to our truth-telling and the ways in which, as an organisation, we've carried out initiatives that have been certainly anti-government and have at times tested the relationships between the historical clashes in this country between, you know, truth-telling and what is our issue dealing with human rights and the policies of government. So when I was a young boy, I moved from Perth across to New South Wales and I would have been eight, nine years of age. We moved to a place called Villawood, which was then in the outer western suburbs of Sydney and uh, Villawood was a extremely hard place in which to grow up and you know do your what was my primary and high school years. And you know I come also from a very volatile, and a very uniquely different type of 
domestic violence background. And, you know, as a young boy, I, I suffered um, many uh, frightening and, you know, um, terrifying experiences in terms of, you know, domestic violence. I had a mother and a father to whom um, loved me in the ways in which they showed. However, the you know, marriage was thwart with issues and, and problems and, and alcoholism and mental health issues and gambling and alcohol and, you know, me and my siblings, uh, my sister and brother, we, um, we suffered uh, as young children in those circumstances. And I remember Villawood in those years was still a very, very much a nearly a totally Anglo-Saxon population. Um, when I went to primary school, um, I was the only black child in, in the whole school. So, you know, I would walk through in the mornings um, the major gateways into the playgrounds. But before I even got to those gateways, I would you know, have to fight my way to school. So, you know, I, I would have every day, you know, a couple of pretty hard, you know, as a young boy, street fights on my way to school, being called all sorts of um, racist names and vile names and, and just bullying in the sense of um, the difference of myself to, to all the other kids. Um, I remember the fights uh, drew blood, so I bled and made me fear I wasn't just fighting one person, I was fighting many. I mean, you know, they would be surrounding me like a, you know, a pack of dogs in the sense of, you know, the taunting and, and, and the racism. Uh, I got to the school, as I said, gateway, and there were other young kids waiting for me to enter the school playgrounds. It became a, a you know, a, a normality that, you know, here comes... You know, here comes the nigger, as I would hear, or he is, you know, Abbo Scabbo. And so the names would commence as I entered the gate, and then I would be um, tormented by being spat on and uh, having, you know, little, little um, sachets of, you know, sauce containers, uh, rubbish out of the bins. Uh, we used to get milk... Um, delivered at the schools in them days, little free bottles of milk and, you know, a lot of... And some of the older people would know the milk bottles I'm referring to and, you know, they would come early. So I remember some of the kids opening up the bottles of milk and, you know, basically throwing the milk over myself. But it was the spit and the saliva in which I hated the most that was running down my, my face. So those that were perpetrating the racism... I used to think of as um, the first line of um, offence and I had to defend myself against that. And the students that I probably despised or the young kids that I despised the most were the ones to whom were were standing back and, and, and watching and, you know, and somehow through their sarcasm and their, you know, their, their laughing at what I was going through tended to continue to edge it on by those inflicting that racism. So they were more like racist voyeurs, as I put it. Not quite, you know, 
courageous, if if you like, or brave enough to, you know, or cowardly enough, if you like, really to to throw a punch or to you know to throw a, a you know a filthy bit of rubbish or or food scrap at me. But um, yeah, they would edge it on. This went on for a long, long time, and I remember one day in the classroom, one of the teachers, a female teacher, pulled it up in terms of, you know, I'd be getting little bits of paper thrown at me in the classrooms and, you know, again being called names, she could hear it all. And anyway, I remember the only attempt by ever one teacher to try to deal with it, she said, um, and I remember to the class, and she made me stand up in front of the class and she said, well, look, Robert, you you laugh at him because he's different and, you know, Robert laughs at you because you're different. And that was the way in which she, I suppose, feebly tried to deal with, you know, what was a pretty massive um, challenge for her as a teacher to deal with. Because, we're, you know, we're talking um, 1963, 1964, in them days in Australia, it was an extremely racist country. And this was in a time, as I said, was a time before there were any multicultural immigration into this country or giving solace to refugees. This was at a time when all of the young kids at um, Villawood East were Anglo-Saxon, they were all of British descent. So this went on for some time, as I remember back, you know, caused a lot of um, varying and different feelings and um, I suppose resentments and as a child you, you, you hurt you if you're subject to this type of racial vilification and far excels the you know, word bullying. It's, this is a dehumanising process of where you are made to feel less human through being black and being Aboriginal. Um, it far far um, was more diabolical than just bullying in the sense of what bullying represents as much as we condemn bullying. And uh, look, I remember, you know, vividly when the the first Italian um, student came to Villawood East, we were, you know, still in primary school, and I remember the day he entered the the classroom and it would have been a few days, if you like, or a week later that the whole tide of that racism that was being perpetrated against myself and, uh, you know, being a black child in that school was now seeping its way over into vilifying this Italian um, young person. That's where I heard the first words such as wog and dago and you know, then I saw their racism in which they were being um, perpetrated against by, you know, young white kids. Um, this Italian boy and, you know, my heart sort of went out to him because it started to, in some ways, um, wasn't, you know, as, as targeted in its fullest sense at me. So, yeah, look, when I then saw more and varying different young kids from different countries come into the education systems in Sydney, well, of course, the racism and the playground prejudices turned against them. And in some ways, I was free of that torment. And one of the ways in which um, myself and my brother you know, also freed ourselves of that torment was through sheer playground respect in terms of 
I remember my oldest brother smashing into what would be probably what you would call the pug of high school when we got to high school. You know, he basically uh, was uh, confronted by, you know, a uh, pretty, you know, older and a, a stronger, um, what we call Wajal or a white young man at high school, but my brother could fight. He, you know, he was a street fighter. And he was a smart fighter and he, he, he loved fighting. So, you know, then he flogged this um, so-called pug of the high school. And from there on, you know, we were highly respected in the playground. But, you know, it's a respect through fear. It's not a respect of acceptance of equality. It's a respect that, you know, if you're going to call me abo or nigger, I was going to punch you fair in the face. So you had to change your plan. Your racism become more, you know, subject to um, not patronising, but you know, either leaving us alone or, yeah, trying to um, turn a, a smirk to a smile. However, that's what we faced. And I remember one thing to this very day when I was young and just prior to going to high school, I was sitting in um, the class and. There was a female teacher and, you know, she was marking our work from the week before. And uh, myself and my sister, who was at the school, we had a hard, hard night that night uh, prior. We were left um, throughout the whole night and we were hungry and the violence began in the home probably three in the morning and we were expected to get up and get ready and be off to school by 8.30 or so there around. I remember in the book in which we handed in, which was the homework, she had signed off her name the week before or a couple of weeks before. And uh, next to her signatory as a young boy, I innocently, I innocently you know, wrote um, the idiot nut and... Obviously, in looking at the book and looking back on that page, she obviously didn't like what she saw, but the overreaction was that she literally grabbed me by the hair and she dragged me into my sister's classroom because my sister had a male teacher and he was known for um, being pretty heavy-handed with the cane. And I remember my sister sitting in the front of the classroom and I was dragged in and I was literally thrown to the floor by this woman. She was quite a large woman and the male teacher um, had spoke to her and clarified what had happened in the situation and she had then left and he went to a cabinet and he pulled out a bamboo cane which would have been, you know, I don't know, four feet, five feet long basically demanded me as he hit me across the leg with it first, which was against the law. The law was that you were to be caned on each hand um, when canes were used in schools and that form of um, you know, punishment. I remember being silent. I thought that certainly in my young mind as a child, she overreacted to just the way she pulled me by the hair. And uh, anyway, I had... Um, and was told by the male teacher to put my hands out, which I did. And uh, the first cut of the cane came down on one of my hands, and 
I remember it was a hard hit. And then uh, the other hand, you know, he nudged out with the cane and I copped a second cut of the cane. And by then you could start to feel the pain as a young boy of this type of discipline, this type of um, barbaric torture, really. And then he caned me a third time. And I remember looking into the eyes of my young sister, who was uh, sitting in the front row. And uh, we went through the night before, and she would have had that all in her mind, the, the horror, the terror of what we'd what he'd been through, the fight I had before getting to school that day, as I talked about earlier, and you know, the, um, the prejudice that I had to face. And here I was in front of my sister being caned to the point of where they used to refer to it as six of the best. And I started to, when I looked at my sister, see teardrops falling down her cheeks. And um, I remember being numb on my hands and, you know, I could see they were blood-blistered. I looked at my sister and with some movement of my eyes I, 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 I tried to reassure my sister that it's okay, it's okay, don't cry. And then, you know, no sooner as I was dragged into the room I was uh, told to get out and get back to the classroom in which um, the female teacher dragged me out from. So, you know, those were some of the experiences that I experienced as a young boy in terms of growing up. I suppose in some ways those experiences, and obviously as I got older, in Sydney in particular, those experiences in terms of racism manifested into where you'd be driving at 18 or 19 and all of a sudden the red and the blue lights would come on behind you and you were pulled over by the police just simply for being black and uh, you would be vilified racially and that happened you know, many, many times to me in Sydney. So in a lot of ways the racism in which was perpetrated against me as a young child I think shaped in many ways my future in terms of my work particularly here at Dumbarton and um, my will to want to uh, help other young Aboriginal people through the institutions and the curriculums in which um, were so uh, oppressive and so brutal against our young people. So uh, when I was young, I started to run. When I was old enough, I realised that I could basically escape the domestic violence at home. I would have been 15, maybe 16, and I you know, would basically um, make my way into Sydney, into the city, even though I had that home in which you know, provided me a bed and, and food and, and my mother and father. And, but it was very, very difficult to live in amongst that violence and that um, you know, experience in which was going on. I suppose in some ways I found myself as a street boy. I remember vividly one night, because where I run to were the bright lights of the city, which was a good 45 minutes train trip from Villawood into the city. And I had uh, walked up 
William Street. There'd be a lot of people who would know the very famous Coca-Cola sign on top of William Street, and that was the commencement of a place called King's Cross. And, you know, those sorts of boulevards, if you like, and those sorts of areas of probably most of the world's major cities are there for those people lost, those people that are hurt, those people that have been emotionally distraught, you know, would eventually find their way into places like King's Cross. So that was and became a learning place for me. My uh, older brother went up to Armidale College in New South Wales and become one of New South Wales' first Aboriginal teachers. My sister became a very highly recognised academic in the world of um, health and medical, but my university became the streets and in and on the streets I, I learnt a different type of you know knowledge, a different type of experience and you know, a different type of reality. And one night I remember sitting down in the shadow of a massive skyscraper. I had in my pocket two things. I had an old bank book, and for most people would know that back in those days there was no plastic cards and rarely people carried cash, although cash was the main transaction. But I had my bank book and I had a lead pencil. It was cold and I was somewhat frightened as a very young man and um, I sat in the shadow of this skyscraper and I remember it was raining quite torrentially. It was like a thunderstorm. So I took shelter and I pulled the bank book out of my pocket and the pencil and I wrote down an affirmation um, that just sort of floated through my mind. I didn't have to think about it. I wasn't... um, conscious of articulating this um, affirmation but I wrote a line and it went a hunger greater than any dream glimpses the beauty shatters and the ugliness is freed and as I finished that I sort of went to get up and I glimpsed my shadow if you like of reflection in an old mud puddle that was there I sort of looked just quickly I saw my hair more than anything else and I um, thought no I'll you know I need to put something to what I've just written and I wrote next to it the child who hates is the one that loves the most and in looking back on that if you know you were to ask me what that meant And even today, um, I would have some difficulty in articulating, I suppose, or justifying a meaning for that affirmation. However, I used it a number of times as I got older, in particular with my writings here at Dumbatung, I put it into a book called Hamburgers for Masterpieces and put it into some of the presentations in which I've given in conferences. I've even spoken to young people about that and tried to define meanings for that affirmation, for what that actually meant. I knew it had to do with the violence. I knew it had to do with my fear as a young child. And I knew that if I could explore into that expression, I could find a feeling. And it's in that feeling that I think the expressive writing can start to act as a therapy, a a form of understanding what you're going through in life and partly a process in which myself and my wife uses here at Dumbatung is in terms of creative writing as part of our therapy programs for young people.
But eventually I left Sydney and I travelled to Cairns and then on to Broome. And I travelled to Cairns and Broome well before they became tourist towns and Queensland was fought with racial police and was known to be quite a brutal place for police persecution and treatment of Aboriginal people and I certainly found that out before I got to Cairns but anyway I made Cairns and then I started to realise through my visits into the Blue Mountains in Sydney when I was young through to the most beautiful country in Queensland, North Queensland, you know, Barrier Reef and the rainforests. And, of course, from there, after a couple of years, travelled over to Broome, and Broome was a complete different experience. Broome was getting closer to where I was born. It was in the same state, a place where I remember being on the Greyhound bus. It pulled up just as the hotel was closing and in the distance I could hear some voices of blackfellas. So I sort of made my way to the group because I knew the hotel had certainly closed by the time. But So they said, you know, you can't camp just anywhere around town here and, you know, the camping spot out at Cable Beach is quite a distance, but you can stay in our place for tonight and you can... Um, you can take some solace there. You can set up the tent and you can stay in there. So I did that and uh, they fed me. They looked after me for a few days until I could make my way out to the camping area. And I stayed up in Broome for a further two years. So I started to get to know a lot of blackfellas up in Broome and people who, you know, they were good-hearted, they were genuine people. But, um, you know, I had this yearning, of course, to keep travelling and I did, so I made my way back to Perth, the place of my uh, birth. I had an auntie who um, invited me one night to go out with the mob, and I did, and I, amongst that mob was a beautiful-looking young, younger woman, and I just couldn't keep my eyes off her really all night. And we started talking, and in time to come, I found that she also had come from a pretty challenging background with the violence near of the same nature, different in some ways. However, her name was Selena, and Selena was to become my partner, my wife, my soulmate, everything that I believed made me successful in terms of just surviving life itself, I attribute to Selena. She is no doubt the strongest person in which I've ever had the um, right to meet and to actually have her as a wife was um, incomprehensible. So we've been together for a long, long time. And I remember in the very early days of forming our relationship, Selena, you know, would say, well, look, Rob, we need to um, look at how we're going to generate money in order to basically just to live. We can't live off your relatives or mine for much longer. So, look, there was a job going in East Perth and I applied for the position I went into a place called the Aboriginal Medical Service in Edward Street in East Perth. The medical service was set up just prior to that in Beaufort Street and all of the Aboriginal organisations in Perth at that time were located in East Perth. 
This particular organisation I applied for a job with was called the Kalila Association and it was an alcohol and drug counselling service and it also ran a rehab centre down at Wandering and then eventually Quo Vardis. And I remember the first day going into the job in East Perth and what I sort of witnessed was that there was our mob, there was a lot of people that was you know, early in the morning and I thought, wow, what are all these mobs doing in and around the building and driveways of the building and, and the ground floor, you know, so early. And anyway, it was an atrocity in which I saw in terms of the lateral violence and the fact that all of the mob was intoxicated by that time and I'm talking nine o'clock in the morning and there was a lot of violence. I remember literally having to fight my way through to the front door and then basically through the bottom ground, and I'm talking, you know, like physical fighting, not unlike, you know, all those years before getting to and from my old schools when I was young. And, you know, I'd cop a hit on the side of the head and a push, and, you know, but these weren't white people, these were Aboriginal people, my own mob, and I thought, well... So, anyway, I would make my way to the desk, and I remember going back to Selena that evening, and I said, look, Selena, I'm finding this really difficult. You've got no idea about the violence and the bloodshed and seeing our people in such a destitute way. I said, it's obviously the effects of um, alcohol and um, whatever it is that's, you know, causing this... I can't go back there. I said, it's, 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 it's a hard ask. And uh, so I went back the next day and went through the same process. And then I got home and I spoke to her again. And she said, well, look, Robert, if you don't go back and work there, she said, how are we ever going to pay for our rent and or our food? You know, so I thought, well, I've just got to do what I have to do. And, you know, I went back and then I went back and I went back and back again. And what I found was when I started to connect with and when I started to get to know the mob personally was that they were the last of the children of the stolen generation. So they had all been released at 16 years of age on gravel roadways outside missions across the southwest with very little money, if any, put onto uh, mission transport and dropped off literally in East Perth. And the reason they were dropped off in East Perth, because East Perth was a transient place of Aboriginal populations that were starting to migrate up from the southwest. So they were reconnecting with families or trying to. And a lot of the mob, all of them, were in a lot of ways washing away the pain and the suffering of the psychological and emotional pain that they obviously experienced as young children inside the missions. So in washing away that pain constantly and having endless supplies of prescriptive drugs from the doctors at the medical service like Serapax and Valium and how that was interacting with fortified wine, you know, of course, by the time of nine o'clock in the morning, they'd be, you know, intoxicated to the point of being quite you know, unpredictable and violent. And one of the things in Perth at that time that not a lot of people really can join the dots or put together the strategy the government had was that they allowed the hotels that surrounded 
East Perth, such as the Beaufort Hotel and the Cura Wine Saloon and a number of others, to be able to sell strong fortified wine and alcohol at six o'clock in the morning. We all refer to them hotels as the early openers. So the government passed legislation that the hotels could start serving just through the drive-throughs at six in the morning. And, you know, they weren't selling that alcohol and grog to people in Peppermint Grove or, you know, Del Keith or the upper class suburbs in Perth. They were selling it to the fringe dwellers. And that's what they were washing away that pain and suffering with. And noting that there was a lot of the psychological and emotional pain that was being washed away when you see the effects of alcohol that manifested the psychological and emotional pain into physical sicknesses such as extreme rheumatic heart disease diabetes was just prevalent in our communities uh, mental health issues lung and kidney issues so there was a total physical and bodily breakdown due to the experiences that these people had whilst they were young kids in the uh, mission and as they were released and connecting up as young adults to family. So what I really noted it as being is these publicans were given the right by government to have licences to kill because most of these men and women to whom um, I had become close to had died before reaching the age of 40 to 45 years of age. And it opened my eyes to many things because I remember a very close friend of mine, uh, George, he would say, look, Rob, I, um, I'm going up to the hospital and you know, I'll catch you up next week. I said, yeah, George, I'll see you next week. And you know, he'd come back to the same fringes and you know, he'd be without a leg and... I think, geez, you know, must have had gangrene or whatever. I didn't give much reference to the fact it was through diabetes. You know, a couple of weeks or months later, he'd say, oh, Rob, I've got to go back to hospital again. And he'd come back without an arm. And it was a testimonial to his strength, the amount of limbs and fingers and uh, parts of his body that the hospitals cut off uh, because of the fact that diabetes was rampant in his body and you know other people were in and being locked up in mental health institutions or jail particularly prisons were just full of aboriginal people in those years we're talking in the decades of the 80s and early 90s the camps that these people were living in you know they all had specific names the Bull Paddock was a major fringe dwellers camp. Starlight Hotel. So yeah, look, these camps had Aboriginal fires burning through them constantly in East Perth. And East Perth today is a very affluent, a very um, privileged suburb that you know you could be excused for never knowing that a Aboriginal person or campfire ever burnt in. East Perth. They link East Perth's redevelopment projects now to the massive football and sports arena, to the casino, to the Crown, to the 
capitalist area of commerce in Perth. So, yeah, East Perth is very privileged and affluent. You know, wouldn't find any Aboriginal people down there like you would in those days. So um, I eventually, through the years, got to also understand that these fringe dwellers and our mob that I would get to know and I would see the barefoot matriarchs leading those mobs on what were still the old ceremonial and trade routes of our ancestors through the city areas of that part of Perth and uh, sit in circles within the parks and live their life as such. And what I came to understand that the beauty and the talent, the uh, wisdom and the, the truth of the spirit of these people being indigenous to the land and their connection to the earth and those stories were never ever broken. In other words, they could break the physical of these people, but they could never ever break the spirit of our will to endure and they could never break the spirit of the knowledge of what was past. Yeah, obviously through government policy and by institutionalising people through the stolen generations into missions, they condemned and stopped the language of our people. Our people weren't able to talk the tongue of their mother or otherwise they'd be strapped, there'd be major torture and uh, discipline to people talking language you know, all customary practice to culture was ceased and people put on reserves prior to also and during the stolen generation era. Aboriginal people were all placed under the 1905 Native Welfare Act that was run by A.O. Neville that allowed the forced removal of Aboriginal children. So um, the suffering commenced and the uh, dispossession and what that resulted for our people... Uh, had commenced. So following um, my time in East Perth, I was approached and I saw this position after a number of other jobs being advertised at a place called Dumbertung. And I thought to myself, well, what's what's Dumbertung? And there was an Aboriginal leader at the time who said to me, look, Rob, it's out at a place called Clontarf. And I said, well, where's that? He said, well, it's on Manning Road and it's a massive, big, old Catholic orphanage. And uh, the organisations located in the orphanage, along with a couple of other Aboriginal organisations, they're there on a peppercorn agreement. I did apply for the job. However, I also had an offer, a full scholarship to study multimedia at Murdoch University. And multimedia was something I was really, really interested in without even knowing what it was. But I knew that it was about creativity and it was about, you know, well, design. And, and of course, I had an interest already in those areas. But anyway, I, I was offered that and that meant a full scholarship with a full wage and uh, also all the fees paid for. So I was thinking to myself, well, you know, I'll still go for this job at Dumbertung because it was based on culture and the arts and I had an interest there as well because with the mobs that I was working with down at the um, East Perth area, amongst them were some of the most incredible artists and I would see masterpieces painted every day and traded off for mere commodities as a means of just them surviving. But these paintings just, 
they would amaze me and I would hear, you know, some of the mob singing, writing. They've written, you know, their own songs in prison and playing guitars. And so I was inspired by their creativity and thought to myself, I'll apply for the job at Dumbatung. And I arrived at Clontarf and drove up this huge big driveway and in the middle was this massive big Norfolk pine and you had the big building and you had the dormitory sides of the building. That's where the orphans would sleep at night. And I didn't know much about the orphanage and or what happened to a lot of the young orphans or even what made up the orphans' population. Of course, later I knew they were from England and Malta and Ireland and different parts of the world. But anyway, I went up this old back rickety wooden staircase when I got to Clontarf and I walked along an even old and more rickety veranda, wooden slatted, and it was really quite dangerous. I remember looking down through the slats and being able to see the cement ground level and, you know, if you were to fall through or to splinter yourself, yeah, it was a, it was a really dangerous environment. So anyway, I got to the dormitory's uh, front doorway and I saw the sign Dumbatung quietly knocked on the door and I had the chairman come to the door and just say, look, we won't be long, uh, Rob, thanks for coming along to the interview. Anyway, they went in and then as I was looking around, I sort of had some thoughts of just how really repulsive this place was and felt. I I could feel the pain, if you like, or the damp darkness of, you know, the orphanage. And I started to sense that and, um, you know, without knowing the history of it at that time. Then I heard the words, look, uh, we're ready to interview you, Rob. But before going into the interview, I had in my back pocket a old brown paper bag. So I sort of hung on to that. And I went into the interview and I went through the interview And then I was asked if I would wait outside whilst the committee spoke. And I said, yep, I can do that. So I waited outside and eventually the chairman came out and he said, look, Rob, he said, quite a few people in there really don't believe you're suited for the job. Um, So they've got their opinions and they said that you you may be more suited for other different positions, maybe with political nature maybe not so much culture and the arts I said well look that's okay I said um no problem I'll he said but look before you go Rob the consensus of opinion is that you be offered the job to cut corners he said that because we're really looking to appoint somebody fairly quickly our director's only just left and I soon found out there was a, it was only a two position office the director and, and one other secretary And I looked at him and he said, well, look, would you consider taking the job or do you need more time to think about it? I said, no, look, I've got something to show you, I said, and then, you know, I'll let you know of my decision. I turned around and I took out of my back pocket the old brown paper bag that I had. And on the brown paper bag, I had drawn a a circular design that was 
made up of a massive central stage area where you know I'd planned to have a you know number of performers, um, bands and poets. Uh, I'd also visualised a fashion parade. Uh, traditional dance groups from varying parts of and around Australia. I thought about the Bardi mob from up north in the Kimberley area, the Lardle dancers from the Gulf of Carpentaria. I had connection with them. The Nanajara women from the Pinjara lands in the Western Desert and Central Desert blocks. And of course the dancers from the Southwest area. In the marquees, in that circular formation, areas in which would hold the prisoner's art programs that we were working on during that time. We had uh, an area that was for young children called Kids' Corner, and Kids' Corner had an you know, incredible sort of thought process about having a lot of face painting, a lot of hands-on activities for our young children, particularly cultural activities and a number of wildlife, and you know, where children could learn about culture and you know, learn about the things that are important to their identity as young Kulungas, as young you know, Aboriginal children. So Kids' Corner was a really major part of Kayana and the concepts of Kayana at that stage. Then we had another marquee area that was specifically for our elders where, you know, they could sit and reminisce and think about the old days and talk about the things in which elders talk about when they get together. You know, that was a very important part of Kayana because that was giving specific respect and uh, recognition to our elders and to make sure that there was a proper space in the gathering for them. Then there was also major tent marquees that would house the Nanajara, the painters and the carvers. We had men from Waluna that would come down and carve uh, shields and uh, kulamans and boomerangs and that would be shared with young Nyunga people. There was another marquee proposed for massive photographic exhibitions. Um, we had thought about the collections that were in and around Perth, the archival collections and of course the artist marquees that were to house artists from right across the southwest and Western Australia that they could sell their art directly to the public and as a result of that there'd be no commission so it would be commission free in the sales of their work and they would be recipient of the total amount of what their art sold for and we had an incredible space area for traditional foods where we would give sample tastings of food types like bush tucker crocodile uh, Waitch the emu, Yonga kangaroo, Bardi, Wichity grubs. Uh, we had, you know, a lot of different fruits and berries uh, planned for in that traditional food area. And then another pretty massive marquee that would, um, you know, house some of the more earth and ceremonial type natural resources like ochre, bush medicine. Feathers, yeah. So again, connecting our young people with those types of materials that were important to ceremony. And in the middle of the design on both 
you know, sides was uh, central tributes. And the central tribute that we had for the first Kayana, because it grew into a second Kayana, was a burning flame formation in a rockery base that was a tribute to all Aboriginal people who had died in custodial institutions across Australia because in 1991, when, you know, the first Kayana was to become a reality from that brown paper bag, the governments announced the uh, Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody off the back of a death of a young Injibunji boy from Robin, John Pat, and John Pat became the symbolic death of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. So right in the centre part of the first Kayana was a huge tribute to all of our people who had died in custodial institutions. And Kayana was, from that brown paper bag as a thought dream, became a massive reality of cultural pride and celebration right across this country. But for Aboriginal people from the southwest, Noongar people, Bibbulmun people, it you know was on our land, so it was extremely important in the time that we needed to find our way back to our identity, our sense of belonging and who we were. And as Aboriginal people, you know, before Kayana, there was, if any resources put into cultural um, initiatives, there was very little. There was only one or two, you know, small dance groups that were at that time just beginning to be known around Perth, Midar, and there was uh, Morton Hansen's group and, you know, a couple of others. But to see Kayana in its massive reality birth from the ground of the uh, banks of the Durbal Yerrigan, which is commonly known as the Swan River, in the shadows of the city was a massive cultural and political statement. It was, a, I think, a gathering in which... The city certainly didn't expect to be so massive and probably Dumbatung also, as it grew, didn't expect it to grow so so massive. So that was indicative of the need and how Aboriginal people were feeling at the time and uh, what we needed to do to bring back that sense of connection to who we were as Aboriginal people. And we were given support and recognition by the then CFMEU, the members of the union, and the highest flying point in the city was a new building being built on the Esplanade frontage, and there was this massive crane system on top of the building. The building had almost been built to its height, and we flew a massive Aboriginal flag that was at least 40, 50 feet long by 30 feet high or the width. And it was a huge symbol of our identity as Aboriginal people that flew over the whole city face, but particularly over the Kayana festivals, the Kayana gatherings. And that really gave Aboriginal people a massive sense of pride. We also had a symbol that was designed for the festival by Sue Cooper, and that was of a serpent, a snake symbol, with the words Kayana written through the symbol. And that symbol was first 
seen in 1991 at Kayana and uh, then was seen throughout all the years that was to follow regarding our work. There was a massive, again, feeling of pride symbolically and celebration of family connections and coming together. We had strong laws, if you like, in terms of alcohol. We had massive signs that were interpreted into five different Aboriginal language groups that was on a circular formation in which Anne Lambadgie painted. And in the five languages, which were Bardi, Noongar, Yamaji, Wongai, Pitinjara, was that don't allow alcohol to break the circle. We had no gates, we had no cash registers. So, you know, the Dumbatung ensured that Kayana was to be a non-commercial event. In other words, there were no need for people to pay into this massive event because we had a strong belief in the fact that how could you sell back to your people the culture in which they already owned and was part of their ancestral birthright to the land and to the budja. And that particular gathering and the second one was held on the old trade routes and ceremonial grounds of the great ancestors like Yagan and Yalagonga and Midjiguru. You know, we were on our old people's hunting grounds. And Dumbatung, in terms of Kayana, didn't go without massive attacks. We were, from the very first moment we started to build this gathering up, we had already been subject to massive negative media response to it. There were issues dealing with the Perth Shire. I remember when we went up to open the um, first Kayana, there was a whole lot of men in suits at the bottom of the steps to the back of the stage. And I remember my name being called out. Oh, look, Miss Eggington, I'm the city patrol officer for vehicle parking. You've got vehicles on the Esplanade that shouldn't be parked here. Another man who said he was the city litter patrol officer and we had no bins nor facilities to be able to cope with the rubbish that the um, event would create. Another man said, well, look, Mr. Eggington, I'm the, you know, city sound control pollution uh, officer, your megabytes, your sound systems are just far, far too massive to be so close to the city. You'd be able to hear it from one end of the city to the other. And I said, well, look, just if you can all wait there until I at least get the opportunity to open the gathering, then we can have a meeting and we can talk about the issues of your concerns. I said, and um, we need to do that. So Kayana was and become very much a target, if you like, for the racism institutionally that existed in this city. And we're talking in the early 1990s, you know, the Aboriginal landscape in terms of the politics and what our people were experiencing and in many ways suffering is a lot, lot different than in the year 2022. And just in the sense of the flag alone was that, you know, the flag flies everywhere these days as it was declared a national flag under the national flag policies. You know, you've got it flying on top of Parliament House now, Sydney Harbour Bridge. You've got it outside nearly every university, political office. Right around the cities, the Aboriginal flag flies, but... You know, in them days, if you were to put one Aboriginal flag into the ground in this city, 
you'd be causing a massive response of agitation and um, anger from the social structures because the flag represented the aspiration of our rights to land. So, you know, it needed to be pacified. It needed to be disempowered. And that's the way in which they did that. And they did that also to a lot of our cultural rights to self-determination in reference to how we as Aboriginal people link our culture to our land and then we practice that in a customary way. Government policies these days really determine culture, particularly as a form of tourism. But, you know, our young people really only see our culture through glass-plated windows or theatres, if they are ever in theatres and auditoriums or festivals. You know, it's disconnected from land, so it disconnects our people from land and it becomes a form of entertainment. It becomes a form of um, certainly alien to our and how our old people practice culture. So Kayana was really about the repracticing of our culture in a customary way, in a real way. And, you know, we were back on our land and that spirit was strong. It was massively strong at Kayana. And that came off the back of the decision to take the job at Dumbatung. And 12 months later, that thought dream became a reality. And it became a reality from an organisation of where I had earlier stated it was only two people in which were the staff members of the organisation. And we, look, we didn't have near even the bare essentials. I can remember that um, we were using other organisations, fax machines downstairs. We did have a typewriter. We had um, an old clock that, you know, would constantly lose time so we were having to alter the clock we had um just barely got an old secondhand fridge we had a couple of desks and chairs and from those very very restricted resources and equipment we run what is in living memory today the most massive and the most respected cultural gathering ever in this country in living memory So I think what's important is is that it isn't the technology nor is it the access to external resources that as Aboriginal people, of course, we had to get resources from companies in which to structurally set up Kayana, but it was the spirit. It was about the people. And if you've got a strong enough spirit and believe in that it's by the people, for the people, it creates its own inner strengths. And one of those inner strengths was that during the first Kayana, there was a group of the very same people we talked about earlier, the fringe dwellers in East Perth, and some of the greatest singer-songwriters that could pick up guitars and make them sound like birds singing were from those fringe groups. So there were two in particular that I got to know very well, Gary Woods and Herbert Squire Brofo. And they were institutionalised all of their life. They were the stolen generation children. They were in prison most of their life. And 
They were down at the front part of the stage with, you know, the other mob from the fringes. They knew me, but, you know, that didn't stop them from, yeah, I suppose getting a little bit disorderly at times. And anyway, they wanted to play this song and they kept coming up to me and saying, look, Rob, we want to play a couple of songs. Are we able to? And I said, well, look, Gary, what songs are they? They said, well, they're songs that we wrote when we were in prison. One of them is called Colour Kabadi Bus and the other one is Jailhouse Rock. And I said, well, look, we're going to have to at least get sober enough to be able to, um, you know, at least hold the guitars and play the songs with dignity. And he said, yeah, of course, what do you want us to do? I said, well, look, come with me and... We went around the back of the stage. It was a hot, hot day and they sat there for a number of hours and sobered up. And I remember Squire Brofo saying to me that, look, Rob, this is the soberest I've ever seen Gary Woods in his life and I've known him my whole life. He said, so I think we're ready. I said, well, okay, let's do it. And against the, I suppose, will and advice of a lot of people that were associated with helping me manage the stage and other parts of the sound. I took them up the back of the steps and they entered onto the stage and they sung the two songs. And the moment in which they sung Kalakabadi Bus, you could actually hear a pin drop on the site. People were just mesmerised. You know, it's a song about one of the village camps in Perth and the bus going into Guildford from Kalakabadi village and uh, all the supplies being bought on Pension Day. And it is an incredible song. And Jailhouse Rock was also played. And Kalakabadi bus really went down as the anthem of Kayana in terms of the music. But it also became the anthem because no other song, even those of Archie Roach and many, many other well-known Man and Greta Sunrise Band that were invited to perform and did perform at the first Kayana, hit the heart of the people like Kalakabadi bus hit the heart of our people because it was a song that represented everything in which our people faced in those years, in that decade. So, you know, it was massively successful. But, you know, Kayana came under a lot of criticism and a lot of um, attempts by government to ostracise and to politically attack Dumbatung constantly. And the second Kayana festival, that drew in over 35,000 people. That was a massive, massive gathering. And the system, the institutions that controlled the system, just weren't going to allow that many Aboriginal people to gather in cultural solidarity and unity, to feel proud of their culture, to feel proud of who they were as people because they had just spent, you know, near 150 years in WA to disperse, oppress, dispossess and to basically create the horror of colonialism on the lives of our people. So Kayana was very quickly and swiftly stopped by government. And look, what was, I think, a really sad part of what happened with Kayana was that decisions that were made to ensure that a third Kayana wasn't going to be coordinated and run by Dumbatung was done through the art funding bodies, the Australia Council, 
and the State Department for the Arts over a protocol policy that we developed. And that was just so that we could, over a kilometre square part of land on the Esplanade, have the right of protocol to make our own decisions, to be self-determining in the sense of how Kayana was to be run and our right as Aboriginal people to make those decisions that when they conflicted with some of the decisions of the funding by those particular departments, that is when we received a letter signed off by, unfortunately, our own people that were involved with the committees of those departments. However, inspired by the then Attorney General Peter Foss, and also he was the Minister of the Arts, to ensure that Kayana was to be stopped, they dissolved our agency status and they withdrew our state funding. And we went for two years before we actually recouped funding through the federal government and were able to realign Dumbatung strongly because we had the support of the community, mainly the, um, well, the whole community, really, behind what they had experienced at Kayana. And we then went on to, you know, where we are today, 35 years later. And within that 35 years, we also experienced an absolute cultural travesty, a cultural crime, really, in terms of what happened to the Kayana Crobbery Grounds. As we spoke earlier, they were the old trade route ceremonial grounds, and hunting grounds of, you know, Yalagonga, Midjigaru, Yagan. You know, the Kayana Crowbury grounds were literally sunk. The very, very place in which that great and massive cultural gathering took place was sunk. They cut into the land base and they allowed the river to flow into the cut-in and they built then, within that cut-in, Elizabeth Key. And Elizabeth Keys became a affluent middle-class playground for white West Australians. And a lot, a lot of money was capitalised on to create that attraction. And, of course, naming it after the Queen of England when, you know, it was the traditional lands of Fanny Bulbuck and other really important Bilberman Yorgas, Aboriginal women, was a direct indictment on our culture, a direct indictment on our spirituality, our aspirations and our dreams as Aboriginal people. It was like what they did to our great warrior, Yagan, beheaded him, took his head into the public square of the then colony, made a statement that this is what would happen to Aboriginal resistance in this uh, state, and therefore, the very same political movements of taking the head off Yagan, they took the head off the Kayana gathering and crobbery. And it forever broke the spirit and the will of our people in the sense of our connection to that extremely important land base. May our campfires burn forever. <laughs>